You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. RTF template injection is newly favored by APTs. Malware hides in February 31st. Milords and Miladies, the Principality of Sealand, hath been hacked. Finland's National Cybersecurity Center warns of a large-scale flubot campaign. False alarms are flagging Emotet where it isn't found. Iranians are victimized by a smishing campaign. CISA issues industrial control system advisories. Kevin McGee from Microsoft is really trying to rid the world of passwords. Our guest is Mike Hendrickson of Skillsoft to discuss turning the tide in this fight against cybercrime. And Mr. Putin says Russia's in favor of international cooperation against cybercrime. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, December 1st, 2021. Researchers at Proofpoint describe an attack technique recently favored by state agencies, RTF template injection. The APTs using the technique are associated with China, Russia, and India. The approach itself isn't new, but its ready availability, effectiveness, and ease of use have made it attractive to APTs. Proofpoint expects to see the usual trickle-down effect, with criminal gangs following the trail blazed by intelligence services. So, let's see. 30 days hath September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, save February, which has 28, and leap year, that's 29. So, yes, that is right. Kids, there is no February 30th, still less a February 31st. But imaginary dates might have the same usefulness for fraud that imaginary places have. Swampland real estate, imaginary Central American principalities— and the like have occupied places of honor in the history of fraud for centuries. Now it's the turn of February 31st. Security firm Sensec observed a novel malware obfuscation technique during the run-up to Black Friday's shopping season. Cronrat was found hiding in the Linux calendar system in February 31st. The researchers say, quote, Cronrat's main feat is hiding in the calendar subsystem of Linux servers, on a non-existent day. This way, it will not attract attention from server administrators, and many security products do not scan the Linux cron system. The remote access tool enables server-side magecart data theft, which bypasses browser-based security solutions. End quote. Is there an imaginary place in the cyber news, too? Well, yes, yes there is, after a manner of speaking. 
Mac Observer and others have reported that the website belonging to the Principality of Sealand has been hacked, infiltrated by cybercriminals who've installed web-skimming malware on the Principality's site. So what, you might ask, and then, well, where's Sealand? Sealand is an actual physical place. It's a Second World War vintage Mossel fort about seven and a half miles off the coast of Suffolk. That's Suffolk, England, not Suffolk, Long Island, we note for the sake of any provincial Yankees who may be listening. The Monsell Sea Forts were big, heavy platforms resting on two substantial concrete pillars. They've all been decommissioned and abandoned for 50 years or more, but several of them still stand, too robust for easy demolition and removal. Sealand, which styles itself as an independent principality, although no government in the world takes that seriously, has in the past made money with such wheezes as pirate radio stations, now has a revenue stream sustained by selling titles of nobility. You can become a lord or a lady, a baron or a baroness for the low, low price of just $44.99. A knighthood will run you $129.99. $299.99 will make you a count or countess, and for $656.53, you, my lord or my lady, can get yourself created a duke or a duchess. Each title comes with an attractive certificate suitable for framing. That the prices are denominated in Yankee dollars suggests, to our shame, that the aspiring Aravistes are more likely to come from Suffolk County, Long Island, than they are from the county of Suffolk in England. Anywho, the site's been hacked, so the prudent wannabe nobles would be advised to search elsewhither. Flubot is back in circulation, Finland's National Cybersecurity Center warns. Basically, an information stealer used to take pay card information and contacts. Flubot is also used to stage other malware. The present campaign is a two-stage phishing campaign. The initial bait lures the user to a malicious site, at which point the user is invited to install an app, which is, of course, malware. The emails are written in Finnish, but are marred by the absence of certain characters used in that language, and also by what NCSCFI calls the illogical use of other irrelevant non-alphabetic characters. It's a high-volume campaign. Quote, We have received many reports about flu-bot messages. During previous campaigns, the malware sent messages to thousands of new victims— According to our current estimate, approximately 70,000 messages have been sent in the past 24 hours. If the current campaign is as aggressive as the one in the summer, we expect the number of messages to increase to hundreds of thousands in the coming days. There are already dozens of confirmed cases where devices have been infected. End quote. So, again, a wary user would hesitate to click and then hesitate to approve a download. In this case, the users would be well-advised to take counsel of their fears. Emotet is also back, as many have noted, and Deep Instinct has an account of the current state of the malicious botnet, along with tools for detecting it. But not all Emotet warnings are genuine. According to Bleeping Computer, Microsoft Defender for Endpoint is blocking some innocent Office documents because false positives indicate Emotet activity. The Hill reports that a financially motivated smishing campaign is active against Iranian Android users. Israeli security firm Checkpoint thinks the activity is unconnected with either a nation-state or with anti-Iranian hacktivists, 
both of which have been suspected in recent high-profile cyber attacks against Iranian targets. The researchers think this is a case of simple criminality, the work of a gang and not an espionage service. But, of course, that's an assessment that should, given the current state of heightened regional tensions, be taken with appropriate reservations. The Hill Quotes checkpoint is saying, quote, The velocity and spread of these cyber attacks are unprecedented. It's an example of a monetarily successful campaign aimed at the general public. The campaign exploits social engineering and causes major financial loss to its victims, despite the low quality and technical simplicity of its tools. End quote. CISA released seven industrial control system advisories yesterday. The affected products all have patches and mitigations available, so if that is your neck of the woods, check out CISA's advisories. And finally, we've heard that TASS is authorized to disclose that Russian President Vladimir Putin, noting the increased rate at which Russia itself experiences cybercrime, quote, We suffer from this ourselves. We understand the importance of joint work on this track, and we will be doing it, end quote. So that's good. Everyone should be glad to find Mr. Putin on the side of the angels here, or at least on the side of John Law. So one might expect some movement against the privateers, right? Of course, right. Here's one Mr. Putin might consider sending the militia, the Russian police, after. Mr. Yevgeny Polyanin, allegedly a numero in the R-Evil gang. Mr. Polanyin is said to be living it up, insofar as that's geographically and culturally possible, in the Siberian city of Barnal. Be on the lookout for him tooling around in his favorite ride, a nicely loaded Toyota Land Cruiser. What? He's, like, too good to drive a Bramach 4x4 like the rest of us? Oh, the nerve of this guy. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. 
Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. One of the things that happens when there's a major breach or security incident is that people who are responsible in an organization for knowing all the things about that particular security area tend to bone up on their skills and review their knowledge just to be sure they're up on the latest. This gives the providers of online training a unique view into what security professionals think are critical skills. Mike Hendrickson is vice president of tech and dev products at online training provider Skillsoft. So in uh, 2021, uh, we saw large spikes in March and April, which coincided with that more infamous Hafnium state-sponsored attack, and it mm. really showed up quickly in our, our thing. Microsoft released a report on Nobilium attacks in late May, and we saw a correlation there again where learning went up. So the interesting thing is, since 2019, the two years of the pandemic that we've gone through, we've seen a 53% increase in the number of hours that learners are spending on security training. And if you look at where is that happening, there are definite industry sectors. 80% of all of our industry sectors saw a big increase. Hmm. The top five increases in security training were the legal industry, which is very interesting to be number one, energy and utilities. You can understand the reasons there. Healthcare, which is important for everyone, training and development, and then nonprofit. Um, those are the ones that saw the biggest spikes in increase in their learning and development. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, it really it really does track as you say them. I'm sort of nodding my head along like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It also strikes me, though, I think as you alluded to, that it's a bit reactive, right? When a bad thing happens and, and people go out there and they say, you know, I better uh, make sure that I'm up to date on these things. From an organizational point of view, I suppose we'd be better off if we were spreading this training out throughout the year. Absolutely. You know, there's a couple things that I also look at with spreading it out, but also What's happening in an enterprise? Because security is one of those areas, as I'm sure you're well aware, that cuts across everything in an organization. Mm -hmm. You know, you might have a programming development group. You might have a cloud group. You might have a, you know, software release group, probably infrastructure group, IT oriented things. But security is the one area that cuts across all of them. So it's interesting. The top courses we're seeing being consumed are things like OWASP top 10 items that people are, are basically boning up on the fundamentals of security. And then secondly, the second one, and this is, I think, uh, really tied to the adjacent technologies, cloud security fundamentals is our number two as far as people consuming security content around cloud. 
And that's a really interesting, kind of indicates to me there's a little bit more than lift and shift going on with the cloud, that people are actually starting to say, hey, we have to do this right. We have to make sure that everything is clean and secure, both, and perform it, hopefully, as well. So we're seeing more of this security cuts across so many of the different areas that we work in. And that's why sometimes it's harder to measure because if you categorize it in programming, you have to make sure you look for that same sort of, you know, did it land in that area or is it in clean in the security area? So from that perspective, really like seeing that the fundamentals are really important as are all the adjacency technologies that are being consumed. You know, I, I think security training in particular gets a, a bit of a, a bad rap with a lot of uh, organizations and, and individuals. You know, if you say to someone, hey, it's time for our annual security training, you rarely have, have someone say, oh, goody. Um, but it, it is necessary. And I think there are organizations who are implementing this as part of their corporate culture who, who are doing quite a good job. Are there any common things that you all see with the organizations that are successful here for how they implement it into their company culture? Yeah, there, there are a couple things that I think are really key for most organizations. One is look at your management staff. So we have a whole new, what we call a spire journey that takes leaders and decision makers through really stringent security training. So when you think about it, if your leaders don't really understand all of the concepts and things that are happening today, you're more vulnerable. If aren't, they aren't aware of the right trade-offs to make or someone's selling them, you know, use this tool and all of our problems are gone when maybe that tool isn't the one they need, first and foremost, Make sure your leadership team has the security training they need to make good decisions for your organization. And then secondly, I think, and this is probably the most important one, is start to pivot towards a DevSecOps model where your security is always integrated with your development programs, that it isn't develop an application, a service, a product, and then throw it over the wall to the security guys to test to make sure it's safe. Involve them at the very beginning and make sure you do this from the very start. So that whole DevSecOps model is, I think, a really important ingredient in the future. And if it's working for DevOps, why shouldn't it be the same thing for security? Always on, always deployed, always secure. That's Mike Hendrickson from Skillsoft. And joining me once again is Kevin McGee. He's the Chief Security Officer at Microsoft Canada. And we note that Microsoft is a CyberWire sponsor. Kevin, always great to have you back. Um, you know, uh, Microsoft recently announced that you all are making a big move towards a post-password secure world. That if people don't want to use passwords anymore when it comes to logging into their, their Office uh, 360 stuff, they don't have to. Let's dig into that. What Exactly what's going on here? What does it mean to the users? And, and where do you all at Microsoft think this is going in the future? 
Well, thanks for having me back, Dave. Uh, and I love your, your post-passwordless world. I, I, that's a, a great vision to move <laughs> forward to. I'm going to use that going forward. Um, I really just think about when I was a kid and I had one key and I wore it on a string around my neck and I went, I had to mm. maybe remember my combination for my locker or my bike. And that was even a stretch for me. I can't imagine even how many passwords I have to manage and, and, and remember at this point. This has really become, you know, uh, an area where even in the media makes makes fun of sort of the, the password challenges we're having now. You see in movies, someone hammers the keyboard for a few seconds, says I'm in, and it's done. Um, right. Passwords need to go, and we need to find something better. Um, the problem is we, we really struggled to figure out what that next step is. I've really been torn. If we eliminate the password, where do we go? Is it going to be more secure? Is it going to be less? I think the next step is really to, to eliminate the password because it is the easiest attack vector for attackers and move into this post-password world uh, that you're speaking of and, and to do it as soon as possible. So what are our options here? I mean, when, when you and your colleagues think about it, what, what is next? What, what's, uh, what's both uh, easy for consumers and pros to use, but at the same time secure? I think part of the problem is just human nature. You know, we've, we've as uh, an industry, really inflicted and horrible password policy decisions on, on users for years. You, know, you have to have at least 47 new characters, no less than 48, no repeats. has to include right. a bunch of numbers, a handful of punctuation marks, several elven runes, and it can't re- <laughs> you know, resemble anything you've ever used before. Um, it, it's, it's so frustrating for users. It should take 30 seconds to, to change your password. It takes seven hours, and it leaves you, you know, enraged, emotionally spent and you know starts to affect your work so now when you move home um, I have to enter a password on things like an Xbox with a controller and whatnot it's just becoming mm. more difficult so the incentive of human nature is to make passwords easier to remember and, and less effective so we're, we're fighting human nature so taking that uh, away from the user and finding a, a multi-factor authentication uh, we use our, our, our Microsoft um, my, um, authenticator app now where it's uh, can scan my my face and it saves it on the uh, the local device. It knows it's me. Uh, provides me um, a number to enter, or whatnot, a second factor. These are are simple, easy ways that users can interact without having you know these challenges or the the emotional damage and infliction of uh, um, these these corporate policies to change your password to just make it easier for for individuals to to interact with their applications. And we feel at Microsoft that using digital empathy making the user experience great while providing a, a password alternative will actually you know, make us uh, not just much more compliant to, uh, to corporate um, policies, but also just more willing to use these applications because they're simply easier. Yeah, I, I have to wonder if, you know, having the big players like Microsoft lead the way with this, if that's going to get us where we need to be, where because I think it's easy for a lot of businesses to say, well, if it's good enough for Microsoft, a big player in the industry, well, then, okay, we're, we're going to take a look at this. And I think that's exactly right. We have to have a number of the, the sort of key vendors in the industry sort of adopt this approach and 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 really run with it to to ultimately make the difference and, and make uh, users feel comfortable using it. And uh, there was a lot of stir the first week or so when the announcement was uh, was uh, went out and some false reporting. Microsoft's going to allow you to log in without a password. And we're still going to ask you to log in securely. And, and in fact, we think even more securely. But people who have made the change could just never go back. That's what they're telling me. 
And I think about my experience as an employee. When I uh, open up my laptop, it scans my face using Windows Hello. It uh, recognizes who I am. I never have to, uh, to add another password yet. I can navigate my day and do my work very securely. I can't imagine the horror of going back to managing multiple passwords for multiple applications. So even as a user, I don't want to use an application that's not sort of certified or, or blessed by my IT department because then I'd have to manage it separately. So that's really cutting down on users you know, resorting to shadow IT, which is ultimately reducing the, um, the threat risk to the organization. But it also just makes for a much great experience. Instead of IT or security being the Mr. No or, or the, the thing that gets in the way of doing my work, it's actually allowing me uh, to do my work better, faster, and easier, which is the promise that we've been um, trying to make uh, for years to the industry that we were going to solve this. And I think we're finally taking those first few steps. Do you think we could see a future where password, you know, username password combination isn't is no longer an option where it's just been phased out completely? I think we almost have to. Um, we're starting to really go into a approve phase right now where we're we're seeing how some of these uh, these new ways of authenticating really work. And the re- early results are that they're working much better. They're providing a great deal of more security and whatnot. It will just be a, a matter of time to really sort of get the the, the world to shift away from password because that's the way we've always sort of done things. So there'll be a cultural um, change as well. But also just think of how many systems you have passwords for that need to be um, updated, all these legacy systems and whatnot. It will take time to get there. So finding ways to accelerate that really can make a difference. But the customers that I've worked with that have done pilots and proof of concept, the user feedback is so overwhelmingly positive that I think that's the number one uh, thing that's driving organizations to rethink it. And then number two, just the cost savings of not having to manage password resets, the frustration, the lost productivity as well too. So those are the two things I really feel are driving most companies to really look at a post-password future um, much more sooner than they would have otherwise. Yeah, well, count me in as someone who uh, can't wait for us to reach that day. Kevin McGee, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.